Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the study of the administrative state. I'm Adam White, and I'm joined by our research director, Jace Lington. Jace, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Adam. Jace, you know, I like administrative law as much as the next guy, uh, but even for me, it very, very rarely moves me to poetry. Uh, but as I was reading the articles that we're going to discuss today, I actually did think of a, of a verse that I've always liked, believe it or not. It is by T.S. Eliot in The Four Quartets. He says in Little Gidding, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And like I said, I thought of that while I was reading the articles that we're discussing today with their author. The articles are on the very origins of modern rulemaking and adjudication. And the author is our friend and our guest today, Emily Bremer from Notre Dame. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Adam. It's great to be here. Now, on this podcast, Emily needs no introduction, but of course, she's an associate professor of law at Notre Dame. She's written a long run of very interesting history-focused law review articles and part of a larger project of sort of excavating the history of the Administrative Procedure Act. And we'll, we'll talk a bit about the larger project at the end. But the articles we have in mind are the ones that she's most recently published First, there was uh, the Rediscovered Stages of Agency Adjudication in the Washington University Law Review uh, last year, and now forthcoming in the Cornell Law Review. Uh, or Emily, is this one, the next one already out? Nope. It's, uh, in fact, I, I am working on edits right now. Okay, so it is forthcoming uh, in the Cornell Law Review, and it is titled The Undemocratic Roots of Agency Rulemaking. You can get that one on SSRN. But Emily, these are two fascinating articles. My guess is you've already spurred a lot of conversation and a lot of feedback because they are really, really fascinating looks back into the origins of uh, the APA and modern administrative law. So before we kind of get into the, the details of the articles, could you just tell us how these projects came about? Um, sure, Adam. So, uh, so I am a procedure geek um, to the core. In fact, I, I, I will start teaching civil procedure next week, wow. um, and my students are, uh, I can guarantee you, unprepared for the level of enthusiasm that they will get for procedure, uh, I think is somewhat abnormal. Um, but, I, you know, I spent several years working in government at the Administrative Conference of the United States, and I think really I started to develop as a scholar while I was there. Um, focusing really on the nitty gritty of agency procedure and how, how agencies conduct rulemakings, what kind of procedures they use in adjudication. Um, and I thought I knew everything there was to know about the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, uh, but I was very interested in this report I had read once or twice, actually, the Attorney General Committee on Administrative Procedure, uh, it's 1941 report to, to Congress. Mm -hmm. And it always kind of fascinated me because uh, it's it, it in a way it sounded a lot like what ACUS does, right? And the Administrative Conference studies administrative procedure, studies what agencies are actually doing, mm -hmm. and then develops recommendation, recommendations that are essentially best practices that they try to disseminate across the administrative state to improve administrative procedure. And the Attorney General's committee was much the same, right? It was a committee put together at the request of uh, President Roosevelt to study what administrative agencies were actually doing procedurally because uh, there was a lot of political debate and rancor over the New Deal and the expansion of the administrative state. But there wasn't actually a lot of information about what agencies were actually doing. Um, and so a lot of the critiques were based on 
more supposition than than actual fact, right? So, so the committee went into the agencies and in detail uh, researched what those agencies were actually doing and produced 27 monographs, each evaluating a, an individual agency or regulatory program, and just in exhaustive detail explaining how they were actually doing adjudications and rulemakings. And that informed the Administrative Procedure Act, right? Those 27 monographs informed a 474-page report to Congress. Um, and that, that report included the text of proposed bills that were actually you know, entered into, in Congress and became the foundation for the APA. So now, I had always been sort of curious. Have, just to jump in, folks. Sorry, folks. Sorry, have, I could no, talk about this forever. <laughs> well, we, we might. So stay tuned. We, um, uh, you know, law professors and lots of administrative lawyers have read the final report, right? Maybe less so than the attorney general uh, report that comes after the manual that comes after the APA is enacted. Mm -hmm. But lots of folks read the the final report. But what's just to emphasize here. You're talking about not just the, the core report, but you said 27 monographs, and you list them in both your articles. You list all the agencies that they 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 summarize, beginning with monograph one, the Department of Labor's Division of Public Contracts, all the way through to number 27, uh, the 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 U.S. Tariff Commission's uh, Bureau of Customs. Uh, I'm just curious, how long are these monographs? I mean, is each one of them a report unto itself? I know, I think. You say they're they were all bound together at the end, and I'm going to keep searching for a, you know a, some federal depository library to want to sell its copy on eBay so I can get my hands on them. But <laughs> just describe the monographs and and where did you track them down? Um, so they they're published in at least two forms. the The committee published its own versions, which are like double spaced um, mm -hmm. and take up an enormous amount of paper. In fact, I have. My library's version, which my li my library li liaison found in the basement at Notre Dame, um, and I have relocated to my office and plan never to give up. Huh. Um, and then also the the Senate actually published the monographs and the final report as Senate documents, so they mm -hmm. they officially became part of the legislative history of the APA. Um, and the, that version of the documents is what I have mainly worked with. Um, they're single spaced; they're much shorter because just because of the formatting. Um, and actually they're available on Hot Online. I found them in a collection that had been put together uh, uh, many years ago. And, and now they're available along with all the rest of the documents underlying the APA in the Bremer Kovacs collection on Hot Online, um, which has its own story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but to, to answer your question about the length, um, they vary. The shortest one is is on the War Department, and it's only like 20 pages. And then the longest one, I can't remember, might be the ICC, uh, the Interstate Commerce Commission, um, or the SEC. It's one of those. But the, the longest is, is a couple hundred pages. Altogether, it's about 1,400 pages uh, worth of research. Um, and I also had read the, I had read the final report um, a couple of times because I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> um, and I had always wondered, because you know, a lot of the report is devoted to describing what is in the monographs. And I knew from my work at ACUS that when you summarize a large body of research, right, you have to, you have to necessarily paper over a lot of variation and a lot of the color gets lost in that process. And so I had long wanted to read the monographs. Um, and and I 
finally got around to it, I guess. <laughs> I had a question about those monographs. Um, looking more broadly at the project that the AG committee had when they started studying administrative practice at the time, what do you make of their explanation that the agencies they chose to study uh, were selected based on their impact on interest outside the government mm -hmm. and um, their extensive adjudication and sometimes rulemaking functions. Did you buy that criteria or do you think there might have been some political decision making in choosing which agencies to look at? Yeah, so I talk about this a little bit in the at the end of the adjudication article in the Washington University Law Review. Um, because the, the committee is, is pretty precise about how it defines administrative agencies, in part because it had to find a way, I think, to make the project manageable. I mean, that was certainly one part of it. You can't, I mean, the, there are hundreds of agencies in government. To study every aspect of everything they do was, well, to be perfectly frank, it just wasn't their charge, right? Um, I mean, the reason why the Attorney General's committee was convened was at base a political purpose, right? The um, FDR asked um, asked for the committee to be convened to, to study specifically administrative agencies. Um, and the way the committee defines what it means to say that an agency is, an, is administrative is in part based on the fact that they have powers over private individuals and not just wholly internal responsibilities within the federal government, right? And then also that they have functions that are quasi-legislative or quasi-judicial. Um, and I mean, I mean, there certainly has to have been a political component of that, right? I mean, the fight over the New Deal and the attack on administrative governance was about agencies that fit that definition, right? And they were the whole purpose was to study the agencies that were controversial and the procedures that were controversial. Um, and so I think there's definitely a political element there. It also seems to me from other reading that that is how administrative action was defined. And, and I suspect that that definition was coming from sources outside just the political process, right? I mean, some of it comes from, from case law and, and, and the like. You know, and that, that raises a, a point that you you focus on in, in in at least one of the articles, maybe both, this distinction between administrative action and executive action, right? And that brings me to a, a broader point. We're reading these articles and these materials now through the lens of the now 75, 76-year-old uh, Administrative Procedure Act, all of the case law that's been built on top of it, all of the sort of changes in framing around the administrative state. You know, what, what is administrative law? Is it executive power? Is it quasi-legislative, quasi-judicial? And in some ways, I, I suppose one of the hardest parts about understanding these, these documents and really reading them correctly and understanding what the authors were getting at was setting aside some of the more recent sort of frames around administrative law and trying to understand just the basic terms, the way the authors understood them themselves. When we go back and read Humphrey's executor, um, isn't, I guess there's a line in there where the court says that the FTC was charged with the uh, with the administration of no policy other than the execution of law, something like this. Mm -hmm. We read that today and it, it could be a little baffling. I think it's a reason why a lot of people sort of turn their noses up at, at Humphrey's executor. Um, but in many ways, the, the the court then and administrative lawyers at the time, 
they were using these terms with just a fundamentally different uh, sense around around both the words themselves and the concepts they're trying to describe. So I guess that's a long way of asking a simple question, which is, as you're writing this, you know, what general what general um, understandings or misunderstandings of the APA, you know, were you grappling with, and and which ones are you trying to to correct? So. So I'm going to answer your question by explaining a little more fully why I finally got around to reading the monographs. Um, you know, before I wrote these articles, I had written several pieces on administrative adjudication. Um, and before that, my focus had mainly been in on rulemaking. In private practice, I mainly, you know, represented companies suing the, the Federal Communications Commission, often out of rulemakings. And so I was familiar with you know, that law. And at ACUS, I had spent a lot of time working with the Committee on Rulemaking. Um, but I, I, during my time at ACUS, I started to get drug into, and really kicking and screaming, I just want to be clear about that, um, into, into studying adjudication. Um, and, you know, one project became several projects. Um, and I had read the Attorney General Committee's report before when I was at ACUS, and I was rereading it again um, a few years later because I had some questions about adjudication. And I, I saw these 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 uh, paragraphs that I, I know I've read, I had read before. I, I had definitely read them before, um, but it hadn't hit me what they meant until I read them after several years of looking at adjudication. Mm -hmm. And there's just a couple of pages in the introduction in the final report where the committee waxes eloquent about the staged tr structure of administrative adjudication. Um, and I had always thought about adjudication as a matter of, well, there's the informal kind and there's the formal kind. And they're, you know, they're just two different ways of doing the same basic thing. And I think that's how administrative law thinks about it. And it wasn't until I was rereading the, the, um, the report that I said, wait a second, what do you mean stages? Right. What do you mean hearing stage? Because if it's a hearing stage, then that means there's not a such thing as an informal hearing. Mm -hmm. Right. There's the initial stage of adjudication, which is a bunch of different kinds of informal techniques. And then there's remaining disputes that if there's a statutory requirement for hearing, get sent on to the hearing stage. Mm -hmm. It's just a totally different way of thinking about adjudication. Um, and I realized that, oh, wow, if that's what they mean, then the APA reads totally differently. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's when I really decided, well, I need to know what they mean because they, they describe it. But again, there's distilling down what you're seeing across a, a, a large landscape. And then they're seeing what, what that actually means in practice. And so I, I went back to the monographs to see, well, what do they mean? What does this staged process look like in the individual agencies? And and that's why that's why I really dug into the fourteen hundred pages of reading. <laughs> I, I, re I remember uh, a few years ago when the Gray Center was just starting to look ahead to the seventy fifth anniversary of the APA, and we were putting together a, a symposium. And I reached out to you because you had just been writing about adjudication, and, um, as you said before the this this Washington Law Review article. And I, I pinged you to see if you might want to write on, on this. And you your 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 response, I can't remember verbatim, but it was great. You said, actually, I'm working on something really, really big. Like you were really excited. Um, like you would, you would, you must have just been in like the first months of this research. And you said, I've got something just perfect for the timing, but it's going to be a much, much bigger piece. Uh, and, and, and so it is. 
Um, but I, I, I chuckled at, at sort of the exuberance of your reply at the time. I knew you were getting into something big. Um, Jace, do you want to jump in with the, the adjudication article? I do. Um, and one of the things that struck me um, reading it was the way that you listed all of the different ways that adjudication affects people in their everyday lives, just in ways even people like me who study administrative law, I lose sight of the fact that this is stuff that people just living their lives who don't think about this at all still have to deal with. Um, and you listed, I think it was nine different examples of pretty famous adjudication cases. And I was wondering if you could tell us how uh, rediscovering the staged uh, nature of adjudication would change the way some of these cases might have come out versus yeah. keeping that older framework. Sure. So so I, I list those examples um, in the Washington University uh, article on, three on 393 and 394. And then I actually come back to them at the end of the article on 434 and 435 um, and explain how understanding the stage structure of adjudication <clears throat> might affect these. Because a big question when you're saying, well, we've been understanding something all wrong, right, is, well, how much has to change if we restore the, the prior understanding. Um, and, and actually a lot doesn't change. Um, it just becomes clearer why things are the way they are, right? So the vast, vast majority of informal adjudication is and always has been non-hearing actions where there's just, there's no statutory requirement for a hearing and there's often no necessity for a hearing. Right. So, for example, um, I talk about like the, the first example I give is a, a postal service employee decides whether a letter has enough postage. Right. That decision is under the APA an adjudication. But thinking about adjudication as a matter of stages has absolutely no effect on that because there's no statutory hearing requirement. Right. Presumably because Congress has made a decision that disputes are unlikely and that in the event of a dispute, a full formal hearing is unnecessary when the dispute is about postage. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's uh, hard enough going to the post office, but turning it into a formal hearing would be even worse. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And then if you think about, you know, the Social Security, I mean, and this is probably the area where the vast majority of Americans come in come in contact or it's, it's one of the main places where Americans come in contact with adjudication. Right. Um, if you, you know, a social security, so this is example number six in the article, right? A social security employee working in a field office grants an initial claim for social security disability benefits, right? Again, thinking about adjudication as a matter of stages has no change because there's no statutory hearing requirement because at that point you're in the early stage of adjudication before the statutory hearing requirement applies, right? And because there's no dispute. If you if you, uh, you know, ask the government to give you something and the government says, yes, it, you're done. You got what you wanted. You go away. There's no need for a, a, dis a dispute. And at the end of the day, what a hearing is about is about finding a way for the government to fairly come to a unilateral resolution of a dispute. Right. Whereas other informal techniques of adjudication that can be used in the earlier stages of the process are about coming up with an obvious right answer or getting the party's uh, agreement or acquiescence to the agency's decision. Did that answer your question? Yeah, it did. Thank yeah. you for that. 
Well, Emily, you mentioned example six in your list was was social security uh, disability benefits. The next one on the list is is one of the most famous items on your list. Secretary of Transportation approves a state proposal to build an interstate highway through the middle of an important uh, public park in Memphis, Tennessee. And anybody who's taken administrative law or teaches administrative law knows that is, of course, the Overton Park case. So what does your your reconceptualization of, of adjudication mean for that famous case? Now that we're thinking of it, not in terms of 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 modes, as you put it, not of modes of of adjudication, but stages of adjudication. What? How does the Overton Park case fit into that? Yeah. So with early drafts of this paper, I got that question a lot, and I'm really grateful for it because it was a hard question, and it was one that once I figured out what the answer was, was extremely illuminating. Um, and, and the answer that I give in the article is that there's, there's no change because the hearing that's required in that context, and there is a hearing requirement, the, the Supreme Court in Overton Park mentions it. Um, it's, it's a legislative type hearing and not an adjudicatory hearing. Um, and, and so I realized a couple of things with this. One is that, um, you know, the APA only talks about one kind of hearing. Right. It doesn't mention a legislative type hearing. Mm -hmm. Right. Congress chose to codify, in essence, minimum due process requirements for adjudicatory hearings, but did not codify anything about legislative type hearings. Mm -hmm. Right. And so as a legal matter, the consequence of that is that if uh, if if it's a if it's a legislative type hearing there, the APA has nothing to say about it. Right. It's basically the the due process scenario where the agency has full discretion. Now, this, of course, is exactly what the Supreme Court held in Florida East Coast Railway. Right. Right. Um, The thing that I had always missed is that because the APA doesn't say anything about legislative type hearings, I think we've lost the knowledge that there is such a thing as a legislative type hearing. Yeah. Right. And, and typically a legislative type hearing is, is it's different from an adjudicatory hearing because it it serves a totally different purpose. It's usually in rulemaking. It's uh, it's similar to what uh, a legislator legislature, usually a legislative committee would do. Right. The purpose is just to give people an opportunity to air their views about a decision that's before the legislature. But the result doesn't in any way bind the legislature, right? Because the judgment that is being made is a legislative type judgment. It's not an it's not a judicial type judgment, right? So you don't need a record and you don't need to ensure that there are no ex parte contacts with the judge because there's no judge, right? There's just legislators. Um, and, and it's just a totally different scenario as a matter of sort of fundamental due process. So Overton Park, is it's an adjudication under the APA, right? But it's really a more quasi-legislative kind of decision about whether or not to allocate funds. And the hearing that is mentioned in the statute is a legislative type hearing that's actually conducted by the local authorities to allow the community to air views about the proposed project. Um, so it's the kind of distinction that in administrative law we, we'd frame in terms of London versus uh, London versus Londoner versus Londoner Denver versus and and bimetallic. So, so yes. you're saying this is sort of the le- the legislative side of the ledger. Um, I guess that was the bimetallic case. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now, one major consequence of thinking about 
the APA's adjudication provisions as a matter of stages is that it does become clearer that if you're really in like quasi-judicial adjudication, then a hearing requirement, it has, it, it means that it's a hearing under the APA. Yeah. Because there is no informal hearing in a true adjudication. Mm-hmm. Right. There is mm-hmm. an informal hearing if you're in a quasi-legislative space. So you you have to understand those possibilities, right? Mm-hmm. And you also have to have you also have to understand that while the pre-APA conceptions of quasi-legislative and quasi-judicial informed the APA's definitions, they're not on all fours with the APA's definitions. And so there are places where something that pre-APA would have been classified as quasi-legislative is, as in Overton Park, clearly an adjudication under the APA, which you know, someone, someone comment, I made a comment to this because my mind was kind of blown when I realized this, right? <laughs> like about to teach Overton Park. And I'm like, oh, I teach this as an informal adjudication case, but it's really much more complex than that. And I, I made a comment about it on Twitter and someone replied basically with a frustration about academics and their insistence on <laughs> looking back at the, quasi, you know. Um, but I think if you want to understand the APA, then you you do have to understand not only what it was based on, but the respects in which it differs from what it was based on. Um, and the you know, and I know I'm running on too long, but I will say the the no, biggest no. thing that I've come away with from my my work over the past several years on this is that there's an incredible amount of knowledge that in the decades after the APA was enacted was just understood in the legal profession, but isn't any longer. Mm-hmm. And if we lose those background understandings, then the meaning of the statute becomes really substantially less clear. Interesting. That's a really important point. Oh, sorry, Adam. I keep hogging the conversation. I'm sorry, Jace. I, I was just one last thing. I promise I'll shut up. Um, you, you offered a few explanations of how your reconceptualization of this wouldn't change a whole lot. What's an example maybe of how the the, the proper understanding of of APA adjudication actually would change um, where we are right now? Yeah, so there uh, there are some programs. um, So there so one thing is there are some programs that existed at the time of the APA's adoption that didn't conform to what the APA codified and um, should have. Right. I mean, I think the APA was more successful. It was most successful where it was out ahead of where the agencies were on the rulemaking side. Right. It was moderately successful where it was just codifying what agencies were doing. And it was really maybe largely unsuccessful as a reform statute. Right. Because if I mean, I think the most powerful force in government is inertia. (laughs) And you combine that with the fact that you know, Congress enacts the APA that's supposed to reform, but sort of reform by implication and without, you know, without statute by statute conforming amendments. And so some agencies that, especially the ones that really predated the New Deal and were, you know, well-established in their, in their patterns of administrative action, didn't change in ways that maybe they should have. So like, so, you know, um, the one of the examples I give number five, right, is a a member of the VA, the Veterans uh, Administration Board of Veterans Appeals, affirms an initial decision denying retroactive payment of disability benefits. This, of course, is Kaiser, right? right? Um, 
This hearing is today conducted, quote unquote, outside the APA, right? It's an informal adjudicatory hearing. It probably should be subject to the APA's hearing provisions, okay. right? But that's, a, again, the VA is one of the oldest administrative agencies. And the older the agency, the less it conforms to modern expectations about administrative practice and the least less likely it is to conform to the APA. <laughs> they just didn't get the hint. They didn't get the memo. Yeah. No. Nope. That's interesting. And then I wonder if when some agencies that have always been important, but may take on new importance as society's shifts, um, I wonder if their existing body of work uh, creates even more inertia. I had in mind when I made that comment, the FCC. So yeah, regulating spectrum has always been really important, but now that the internet is central to our lives, um, have you seen anything with respect to the FCC like you're talking about with the VA? Um, I mean, the FCC definitely has some pre-APA practices that are sticky. Um, as I mentioned, I was a telecom attorney before I went into government, so I have uh, some familiarity with the FCC. Um, and, you know, they they call their rules orders. Um, so that's fun. <laughs> you uh -huh. know, they um, they issue declaratory rulings, which they often put through notice and comment, which are really declaratory orders, where, which are actually adjudications. With the, with, and the Supreme Court has gotten that wrong at least twice. Um, so, so there are definitely things like things like that, um, for sure. Although, you know, the FCC was one of the New Deal agencies, right? And so it was created at a time when the, the definitions of rulemaking and adjudication, I think, were already starting to emerge. So there is um, maybe more consistency with the FCC's practices and the APA than there are with some of the older agencies. You know, one example that might be familiar to um, some of your listeners is with the with the IRS, which, of course, only in the last decade or so has found that courts are requiring it to comply with the APA's rulemaking uh, uh, requirements. Um, and that I think that's another example of an agency that had a very well established regime for rulemaking and guidance uh, under, you know, in, in, up the, in its administration of the tax laws and had a long-standing, as I understand it, pretty broad-based cultural consensus that the APA's rulemaking provisions didn't apply to it. Um, and that has been, the courts have been disabusing them of, the, of that notion, I think, more recently. That makes sense. Yeah. Turning, I want to give just as much attention, if we can, to the forthcoming article on rulemaking. Um, but as kind of a transition... Um, what do you make of that original purpose of the APA being a compromise between the administrative practices that had developed in the New Deal state and some of the political responses wanting more accountability? Do you think the APA in practice has met those goals? Or what do you think, especially in terms of rulemaking where the original understanding of what they were doing with the APA seems so different um, from where administrative law seems to be going today. Yeah, so I actually think the APA has maybe been most successful in rulemaking and more successful there than in adjudication. Um, on the and and uh, you know just to elaborate a little bit of the of, on that on the adjudication side, I think part of the reason why. There are, there are so many informal hearing requirements in adjudication, 
The main reason, perhaps, is that, well, it's a combination of things, but one is that Congress just has sort of ignored the APA's hearing provisions in a lot of instances, right? Creating new, I mean, either exempting existing agencies from the APA, as in the case of immigration, right, in deportation hearings, right, in 1950 in Wang Yang Sung, the, the government argued that the APA's hearing provisions didn't apply to, to deportation hearings, and the Supreme Court said, actually, yes, they do. And so the government turned around and went to Congress and said, could you give us an exemption? And Congress said, yeah, sure. I mean, that's a radical oversimplification, but like that's, I mean, that's that's your sort of first post-APA creation of an informal adjudicatory hearing, right? It is a thing, but it's only a thing really post-APA. Um, and then you have new, as new programs are created, Congress has a tendency to neglect the APA's hearing procedures, right? And agencies have a tendency to sort of run from them. I think largely sure. because of issues related to the most important part of the APA's adjudication regime, which is which is administrative law judges and the whole regime for their for their hiring and protection of their decisional independence. Um, and, and then courts, for their part, in more recent years, have seemed to be reluctant to enforce the APA's hearing provisions and have, as far as I can tell, never really enforced Section 559 of the APA, which requires a clear statement from Congress to, to deviate from the APA's minimums, right? Uh, so, so I think we have like a cross-institutional agreement that actually we don't really like the APA's hearing provisions all that much. And so maybe we just won't actually do that. And what do you think is behind some of that? Something that struck me is a lot of administrative law came out of um, dissatisfaction with the original constitution, the limits that it seemingly imposed on <clears throat> the three branches of government in the light of new policy challenges facing society. Is some of that same problem uh, affecting the way that we're applying or not applying the APA today? I think so. And, and, and I, I mean, I think the, the dissatisfaction with formal procedures, you know, I mean, we say that the APA was a compromise that put to rest these disputes, but I, I, I don't think that's true. Um, I, I think the dissatisfaction with formal procedures not only persisted, but perhaps might've won the day sort of politically and within the legal profession. Um, I, I mean, I describe administrative law as having a preference for informa informality. Um, and and I, you know, I think that has been borne out over over the years. Um, the, the other thing is, you know, we we sort of shifted in the 1960s and 70s to preferring rulemaking over adjudication as the primary means of agency policymaking. Um, and, you know, several people have pointed out um, Jerry Mashaw, Ron Cass, others, that rulemaking today and rulemaking in the New Deal era actually look pretty different, right? We we do some big things with rulemaking today, whereas rulemaking um, in the New Deal era was not exclusively, but maybe more about kind of management of administrative programs. Yeah. Um, and so in, in this space, uh, you know, in a, in a way, the APA's rulemaking provisions were kind of out ahead of what administrative agencies were doing. It was sort of a a blueprint for a, a notice and comment process that maybe wasn't quite as needed then as it is now. I mean, I don't know how. So, you know, on the one hand, you can say, well, the APA was hugely successful or Congress, you know, made something before anyone needed it. But I don't know how you replicate that 
you know, sure. it's hard to solve problems you don't yet know you have. Um, but when, you know, when, when agencies started using rulemaking more and Congress started giving agencies more rulemaking responsibilities, the APA was already there, right? So you had a procedure that sort of was at, you know, was already available and, and maybe wasn't um, afflicted by substantive disagreements. Right? I mean, as a proceduralist, my greatest pet peeve is how frequently procedures are used to try to uh, achieve substantive aims. I think sure. procedure has value in and of itself. Um, but I'm usually like the lone person screaming that in a crowded room of people angry over substantive things. Mm. Um, but, you know, so so in the 1960s and 70s, you have these new these new agencies with these new rulemaking powers that absolutely were controversial politically. But they didn't have to have a fight over procedure because we've already got 553 of the APA and we're just going to, you know, we can just use that template. Yeah, I was thinking about this, this change in, in, in the context around administrative law since 46. You get, as you said, the shift from adjudication to rulemaking. You get new statutes with much broader scope and much, you know, the rulemakings take on much more significance and also just the parties that are that are affected by these things. In the 1940s, it's largely either industrial regulation, um, which you see in as you in your rulemaking article, which we'll get to in a second, where you talk about who's submitting comments in these rules, you know, in, in the early years, it's, you know, trade groups and unions and so on. It's sort of stakeholders, uh, immediate stakeholders in, in industrial regulation, or it's benefits programs by and large. Um, but once these things get broader, um, especially with the onset of, of environmental regulation, where it's not just industrial regulation, it really is much broader social welfare uh, um, and, and public health regulation. Um, suddenly the stakes are much higher and you could see how people on all sides of a particular policy fight uh, in any of these subjects, um, uh, suddenly they'd all be dissatisfied with uh, the procedures of, of the APA. Um, but maybe we'll, maybe we'll turn to the to the to the rulemaking article because, like Jace, I don't want to give it short shrift. It's really really interesting, and since it's forthcoming, it means more of our listener or few of our listeners have probably had a chance to delve into it. Um, let's just start with the title: the undemocratic roots of agency rulemaking. Um, well, as opposed to I suppose the democratic roots of agency rulemaking. What's the what's the 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 misunderstanding of rulemaking that you're trying to to dispel here? Yeah. So. Um... You know, I think about rulemaking as being governed by a sort of general consensus that the point of the notice and comment process is to ensure that there's a measure of democratic of democratic legitimacy in agency decision making. Um, and you know, I I come at that from having worked again at ACUS on on rulemaking projects. I have seen agency employees and scholars um, and sort of everyone else think about it through kind of a democratic lens, right? The point of this whole process is democracy. And so the thing that really struck me in reading the monographs was how the practices that inspired section 553 did not seem to really be about democracy at all, right? And that's why I say undemocratic. It's a little, um, it's a little bit of a striking term perhaps, but, but the point is that what inspired 553, right? Those administrative practices that are described in the monographs was just not about democracy, right? It was about information gathering, right? And, and more particularly, it was about information gathering from people that the agencies 
thought would be knowledgeable about the subject matter and would be easy to kind of have a conversation with and get some quick feedback from, right? Which mainly meant representatives of well-organized interest groups, which mostly meant industry, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I was really struck in reading the monographs uh, to see these descriptions of agencies you know, keeping a mailing list of all the trade organizations that had offices in DC, who they would, you know, send a letter to when they were thinking about a rule or like give them a call on the phone and like talk to someone they knew who they thought had information about. And the only thing I could think about was, wow, this is a recipe for capture, yeah. right? Now, of course, capture theory doesn't come, doesn't doesn't really arise until a couple decades after, you know, a decade or so after the APA is enacted, right? So in the late 1930s, 1940s, that's not that's not the lens through which anyone was thinking about this. Yeah. Um, but you can understand maybe why 553, having been based on those practices of targeted solicitation of basically private expertise from organized interest groups would result in a process that mostly involves comments from the organized representatives of interest groups, right? Which we tend to think is a pathology of the of the of the modern rulemaking process mm -hmm. because we're not getting, you know, the, the APA talks about public comments, but we're not really getting comments from ordinary citizens. We're mostly getting comments from those from those from those interest groups. Yeah, in the SSRN draft, you have a, a nearly three-page uh, table where you walk through monograph by monograph. Um, a, this is from those the, the the Attorney General report monographs. You go through agency by agency. Who were they consulting with in the rulemaking process? Um, and you know, again, uh, monograph number one: the Labor Department's Division of Public Contracts. Who do they consult with? Trade associations and labor organizations. Um, and some some of the subsequent ones, like the FCC, are more detailed. Um, but as you said, the point here is, is um, well, as you put it, quote, the monographs reveal some concern that the consul consultative process was too closed or might sometimes produce insufficiently representative information. Uh, the agencies, you go on to explain, the agencies really targeting groups where they'll get some expert information. As I was thinking about this, maybe it's it's maybe it's not just that it's undemocratic it's 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 democratic of a sort it's very limited right it's it's unpopulist or it's non-populist it's not like they're going out to the grassroots it's uh it's not like the example you lead the article with these rulemakings where you're getting now thousands or millions of public comments on things like net neutrality this is something this is a much smaller universe of concerned parties it's almost something closer to what we think of now as as negotiated rulemaking, right? That's not. It's not. You're not saying it's exactly like that, and I, I don't. I don't mean to suggest it, but it's it's this much. You can almost envision seats around a table, um, and it's a it's a if it's democracy if it's democratic it's democrat it's sort of a democracy of a very small group of stakeholders on on multiple sides of an issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the. Uh... You know, in on the adjudication side, there's a more straightforward codification of what agencies were doing. Um, on the on the rulemaking side, there's there's a bit more creativity in the APA's codification, right? So you can see how the notice and comment provision, like 
like the seeds of the notice and comment provision are there in the in what they call the consultative process pre-APA, but it's not until the minority report of the Attorney General's committee um, that you start to see any mention of like the word democracy, right? Yeah. I think it's mentioned maybe once in the minority committee. And you start to see a concern with sort of more public involvement in rulemaking. And Congress, perhaps unsurprisingly, because it's the legislature, right? puts more of that into it. I mean, I think they liked that idea. And so you get more in the legislative history about a sort of more, more of a focus on public information and public participation. But even so, it's very, um, it's very nascent, right? So I think some, some readers are likely to be disappointed with this article because having read the title, they might expect more about the various theories or models of democracy and what we mean when we say that the rulemaking process is or could be or should be democratic. Um, I mean, there are a lot of different models of, of that. But, you know, I'm really writing about the origins. And at the origin, that kind of detail and and sort of, uh, you know, philosophy was just not not there, right? And and so it's it's not in the article because it's not in the in the subject of the article. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just add before I get out of, out of Jace's way, um, I alluded earlier to that the 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 symposium we did in the George Mason Law Review on the APA 75th anniversary, and one of the points that both Paul Verkyle and Jeremy Rabkin both got across in their pieces was that actually the minority report for the attorney, the, the minority views of the attorney general report actually had a much stronger influence on the final legislation than today we, we seem to, to we, we kind of assume, right? We assume, well, it was the majority really that carried the day. And and both Verkyle and Rab can say, well, actually, no, the minority views had a pretty strong gravitational pull on on Congress. And, and this seems to, to be a, a further example of that. Right. I mean, even so Casey Davis, um, who actually was on the staff that supported the attorney general's committee. Um, you know, he, in a, in a um, interview with, with Paul Verkyle actually uh, for, I think the 50th anniversary of the APA, um, mm -hmm. it was him and, and um, Walter Gelhorn, who was also yeah. on the attorney, uh, worked with the attorney general's committee um, says, you know, I didn't start. He, so he is, he has described 553 as the, you know, the greatest invention of modern government. He's like, but I didn't start saying that until like 1970, <laughs> you know, and actually it may have been the most important idea in the APA, but it came from the minority and it was it's 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 brilliance wasn't recognized until a couple of decades later, right. which I think is is part of, again, part of what informs my judgment that the APA perhaps was most successful where where it was least needed at the time of its enactment. Yeah. Thank you. I have just. I think this might be our last question. We're almost at time here. It's a more narrow question about the rulemaking paper. Um, you're talking about the skeletal nature of the rulemaking provisions in Section 553, uh, talking about demanding that uh, the courts and agencies have a kind of post-enactment liquidation of its meaning so that we know um, what exactly is involved. Uh, with those rulemaking procedures. And I was wondering if you put any thought to what would happen if it was left to the agencies instead of the courts to figure out what these procedures would be and then have Congress revisit the statute as needed. Like you give the examples of 
the Freedom of Information Act, giving more transparency or uh, revising the way that federal advisory committees work. Is that a sustainable model or do you think that it is preferable to have the courts and agencies kind of go back and forth with what those provisions should be? Yeah, so the interesting thing is that the minority um, report urged Congress to have a more detailed provision on rulemaking that was, I think, entirely non-mandatory, that expressly sort of was designed to say, like, agencies should do these things, but basically it's in their discretion about whether and how to do them. And right, and and, and actually it was more detailed in the sense that it listed a variety of things that agencies could do to solicit feedback beyond just public notice and, and comment. Um, but it was expressly kind of suggestions and not anything that would have been a requirement. And Congress didn't like that. Congress decided, Congress decided both to pare back the provision and say less, but make what it did say mandatory. Um, and, and, you know, there's still the good cause exception. I mean, you know, there, there are lots of situations where, it, you know, maybe it doesn't make sense for agencies to take public comment that comes out in the monographs. And I think it's, it's replicated in the APA's exemptions. Um, but, but where it's required, Congress specified minimums, um, and they're not, you know, they're not phrased as suggestions, right? And they are subject to judicial review. I mean, section 706 on the scope of judicial review essentially establishes a de novo standard um, for claims of procedural error, right? I mean, the courts are supposed to ensure that the APA's minimums are enforced. Um, and so I, and I think this marks me out as somewhat strange among law professors. Uh, I, I, think, I think the courts are supposed to have that role in enforcing the APA's minimums. At the same time, I, I do think that Section 553 is supposed to be a minimum, right? And as long as the agency is complying with whatever minimum requirement is applicable under the statute, they should have and they do have broad discretion to formulate the procedure in a way that makes sense for their particular circumstances. And you see this, right? I mean, this is this is just this was pre-APA and it exists now. It just so happens that because of the way the APA is structured, most of the sort of more creative engagement comes before a notice of proposed rulemaking is, is published, right? Because that sort of kicks off the process that's judicially enforceable. And so then it's a, it's a little more ossified, right? Because it's more controlled by the way the courts have interpreted the minimum requirements of the APA. But agencies still have public workshops and they still have informal conversations and they still hold quasi-legislative hearings even in the absence of a statutory requirement. Right? They do all kinds of things um, to get to solicit feedback and get information about um, you know, whatever it is that they're about to, to make a rule on. Um, and I think that that discretion should be affirmed and is an important part of the regime. Emily, before we go, uh, you mentioned at the outset uh, the Bremer-Kovacs collection. Uh, and I have to ask about this. Uh, maybe you could describe what is the Bremer-Kovacs collection? It sounds like an art museum. Um, uh, <laughs> what is it? How did it come about? And where can people access it? And what's in it? So, um, so the Bremer Kovacs collection uh, is actually the, my very last trip before the pandemic struck. In February of 2020, I went to uh, Duke for the annual administrative law symposium. 
And I was sitting next to uh, Katie Kovacs at dinner, and she has worked with the history of the APA for many years. And we were uh, talking talking about our work with those documents and expressing our disgruntlement that they're kind of scattered all over the place. And wouldn't it be great if there's just one place where all the documents were in an electronic form and you could just go get them? And then we were like, well, hey, let's do that. Um, and so we, um, we worked with uh, a librarian at Rutgers, who uh, um, Charlotte Schneider, and she had been working with Katie for years on these documents as well. And we reached out to Hein Online to see if they would be interested in putting, to, in putting together such a collection, and they were, um, especially since a lot of the electronic versions of the various documents were already in various collections on Hein Online. So it was actually more a, a matter of kind of pulling together far-flung sources than anything else, although we have added some and are still adding um, some additional documents to the collection. But it begins with the very first bill on uh, administrative procedure in 1929. Um, and it includes all the bills that were introduced into Congress. It includes all the legislative history of those bills. It includes the work of the Attorney General's Committee, the report, as well as the monographs. Um, it also includes, and this is this is one of the weird things about the APA, you know, the legislative history is not just legislative documents, mm -hmm. right? It's executive documents in the form of the AG committee's work. And then it's also private sector documents because the ABA's uh, Committee on Administrative Procedure right. uh, was a primary driver of the, uh, you know, of the legislative process. And so the collection also includes the ABA reports that were produced um, during the time leading up to the APA's adoption. Um, and then the collection uh, ends with the Attorney General uh, Manual on the APA, which was published in 1947. So it's technically after the APA is adopted, but it was actually written by some of the same people who worked with the Attorney General's Committee. Yeah. Um, and it provides basically the Department of Justice's view about how the um, statute should be uh, interpreted. Great. Well, you and uh, Katie wrote a great essay describing the collection uh, for the University of Minnesota's uh, Law Review Head Notes. We'll link to that in the show notes here, on, along with uh, links to the two articles we've been discussing, uh, the rediscovered stages of agency adjudication in the Washington Law Review last year, and the undemocratic roots of agency rulemaking in the Cornell Law Review coming this year. But Emily, thanks again for, for all of the First of all, for these fascinating articles and all this work, um, but thanks especially for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. And, and on behalf of Jace and the entire Gray Center, uh, thanks again for tuning in to this episode of Gray Matters. Please join us again next time. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter. <laughs>